Hello and welcome back to WA Real. I'm your host, Bryn Edwards. WA Real brings you real and authentic stories from fascinating people here in Western Australia. Stories to inspire and guide you to take action to be all you can be. We all face adversity, great and small in our lives, but it's what you do with it, how you process it through your belief system and how you move forward that defines you. And that's what we'll be digging into today. Today's guest is community leader, philanthropist and inspirational speaker, Dr. Ross Worthington, OAM. Ros was born in Collie and raised in Chapman Valley, east of Geraldton. Ros's story is one of using, and I'll be honest, the experience of shitty events to do something bold and beautiful through the power of giving. Most notable examples include, from her own experience with breast cancer, she created Breast Care WA. From her own tough childhood, she created the Love Angels Foundation. And from her own experience of suicide when her husband took his own life, she founded Lifeline WA's Help Me campaign and in 2017 launched the Stepping Out of the Shadows, a campaign aimed at lifting the veil on depression and suicide. Ros holds an honorary doctorate from, Do from Murdoch University and her tireless community work saw her awarded an Order of Australia Medal. She was recognised as, as the West Australian of the Year for Community in 2015 and inducted into the International Women's Day Inaugural Hall of Fame as one of West Australia's most inspiring and courageous women. She has also recently released her first book, an autobiographical account of her life entitled The Power of Giving, and has recently set up a, a consultancy based on all her knowledge. Ross, welcome to the show. Thank you, Bryn. It's lovely to be here. Thank you. So, um, I alluded to the fact that you had a tough childhood, and we'll get into that in a minute. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I ask all my guests at the start is, what is it like to grow up in Western Australia and what does it mean to you to be a West Australian? Oh my gosh, wonderful question because I am the real parochial West Aussie. Western Australia, um, to me, is a community that, well, I've been here all my life and growing up in rural Western Australia, um, you know, we all have memories that we may not want to hang on to, but the beautiful things in Western Australia, the, the uh, my favourite smells, the wildflowers, and collecting the mushrooms, and uh, it's just such a diverse state that we live in. I love every little bit of it. Over the years, I've travelled most of Western Australia, mm. particularly rural and regional, um, because I think you just can't take the bush out of the girl. Right. You know, and... Um, to me, I've, my whole life has been working with the community and the grassroots people of the community. So I have a, an amazing um, relationship with the grassroots people throughout Western Australia. From where a, you Amazing, community-spirited, giving souls. Mm. 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 And I think um, it's interesting to, to go back to because you know, here we are, we're sitting in the middle of Perth making this, um, yes. this podcast and, you know, a lot of a lot of us get caught in and around Perth and the city, and we're not far mm. from St George's Terrace. But there is so much diversity. There is so much community spread out across a huge landmass. Oh, it's um, I live virtually right in the city, two k's from the city yeah. centre. But I do love it. Like this weekend, I'm off down to Bunbury and Collie and Austrelind and and to spend time with family. And any opportunity I get to go yeah. home to Geraldton or go down to Collie or to go anywhere throughout Western Australia. I just love getting out in the bush. There's, there's something about it, you know. I know it sounds cliche, but the rain on the red dirt, 
when we go up north and, and I've just got a gig coming up in Onslow, it looks like, and I'm so excited to be going mm. to Onslow to talk to a bunch of women up there. Um, it's, it's a very special state. It's a very special country, but of course, Western Australia is the best state. I, I would agree with you, obviously. <laughs> obviously. I, think, I think there's definitely something there about, for me, um, it doesn't take long to be away from the clutter of other human beings, mm. whether it's their mere presence or energy. Yes. <laughs> um, uh, coupled with the fact that it doesn't take long to go outside of Perth, and then you are you know, further down the rungs towards survival off the land, yes. which then makes things... You acutely focus on what's important and what's and, not. and you learn that so much. Well, I've always been privileged to work with Indigenous women. Yeah. They call me a um, black fella and in a white skin. Right. Was what they the title they gave me many years ago, and I think it's the um, it's the one that touches my heart the most. You can get an OAM, yeah. but to be told that by your Indigenous sisters is amazing. And so to go out into the bush. With women's business to be invited, I mean, some of those times are, you know, they're forever imprinted in my heart. They've really left a footprint. I've learned a lot from my Indigenous sisters. What sort of things have you learned? Simplicity, keeping it simple. You see the Aboriginal people, the Indigenous people, it's heart to heart. I mean, they can look at you and they'll know straight away if you're a genuine soul. Mm. They're they're very spiritual and, of course, so we're on the same page and... um, yeah, it's 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 very much for the same philosophy that I follow, and they're just they're gentle. These these women, they're very powerful. The indigenous women, you know, um, a lot of the husbands will sit up and take notice of their wives. Um, they're a very powerful um, race, and they've taught me love. Kindness has been shown to me by them, and and given back by me and so it's um it's just something i can't explain it's it's a real feeling of peace i have when i'm with indigenous women mm. Mm. superb yeah as as i mentioned uh, in the intro <coughs> you so you, you you grew up in foster care yes um with your brother mm-hmm. um this was after uh, was it your parents separated and was it your that your father's side of your family almost abducted you and yes, you that, that, that's that's exactly what happened. Yes, yeah. I was three and a half or three, and my brother was eighteen months old, mm. and uh, we were abducted by my dad's side of the family, and uh, taken to Geraldton. Uh, we were then put into an orphanage, and then from the orphanage we went into foster care, and uh, yes, it was very interesting, but. And it was like a year or so before our mum even knew where we were. So, right. as a mother in those days, you know, in the early 50s. Did you connect back to your mother? Many years later, right. when I was 14. Crikey. Yes, we found each other again and uh, reunited. And we were best friends until the day she passed away, eight, ten years ago. Mm. So, that along with um, you suffered abuse yes. during the childhood and it was was it two years into high school you left how how does all of that you know such a lot of stuff happening early in life how does that shape a person well uh, you know I, I when you're young and you're little you don't know what's happening but I know that I have resilience and I think that's the number one factor that you have to be resilient and of course yes suffered abuse Um, sexual abuse um, until I was 14 but it's something when you're a child that 
what can you do? I mean, it was very prevalent in those days. No one spoke about it like we do today. I mean, a lot. A part of my work is talking to children and making sure that they're aware, you know, um, because in in the days that I was growing up, you never spoke about anything like that. And remember, my brother and I had been taken from our mother, so I think I might have been suffering an, uh, abandonment issues yeah. because then when it <clears throat> when you're abused, and of course your abuser says to you, "Don't tell anyone, otherwise you'll be sent away." Well, for a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old child, that's the worst thing imaginable because I had got attached to my foster nana. And yeah. so um, they use all of these, you know, these ways to, to keep you quiet. I just carried on with my life and then I did go in and live with my real grandmother, you know, the grandmother that <clears throat> was responsible for having yeah. us taken and uh, into my second year of high school she suggested that I get out and get a job because she really needed support so I, in, in those days too you left school fairly early yeah. a lot of girls and um, you know you just got out and got a job and then you got married and you had babies that's how it was in the yeah, early 50s that was, the life path. that was just the life that you had and it was yeah. sort of mapped out for you so I didn't think it was any, you know, there was anything out of the ordinary for me to leave school. I wasn't that ac academic. And when the teacher um, walked around the classroom, we'd had um, maths and I got 3% for my maths. And he walked around and he walked, stood beside me and pointed down and said, this is what dumb is. And I'll never forget that. And so um, I think for many years I thought I might have been a, pretty dumb but you know mate when I look back now on my life and the things that I've achieved and what I've done I would love to see that teacher again unfortunately I can't even remember his name because obviously he wasn't worth remembering yeah. but I do remember what he mm. said and so I left without any qualifications what could I do I couldn't do anything so I worked in a hotel and became a waitress and I have to say it was the best hotel in Geraldton and also it was um, I was the best waitress so it was like, no matter how old you are, you throw yourself in and you do your best. Yeah. And so I was there for five years and learnt the ho hotel trade and was very much loved by the owners of the hotel. They sort of took me under their wing. And I, and I think, as I say in my book, that was probably the first time I felt unconditional love. I was going to say, going Unconditional from, love. And, and I imagine, you know, just listening to you and looking at you talking mm. about... I was the best waitress. That yes. would have probably been the first sort of time when you got a sense of self-worth and adequacy yes. that you weren't <clears> the <throat> dunce. It was amazing because Mr. and Mrs. McGregor, and sometimes I'd go up and get my pay every Friday. And in those days, it was an envelope and it was just cash. And I'd get my pay. And, and many times this happened. The first time I, and I had, I think, um, a pound. No, it was, um, anyway, $10 or something more. And I remember going back up to the office and saying, Mr. Mack, you've overpaid me. And he just looked at me and they called me Twiggy. That was my name, Twiggy, because right. I had long legs in those days. And he said, no, Twiggy, we haven't made a mistake. He said, that's just because you've been wonderful and you're a great worker and we love you. And then many times after that, there'd be that extra money in my, you know, my pay packet. Yeah. So, um, yeah, they were beautiful. And as I say, it was unconditional love from them. You could know that it was a genuine love that they were giving and and of course I was very open to receiving it yeah because I wanted to please of course Indeed. you know in those days you want to please everybody make yeah. everybody happy and I, can, I imagine <clears throat> so you know what had happened before and 
um, this whole if you tell then you'll be taken away and you've been yeah. taken away and you just want to please so mm. you can stay in the same place who um, how, what sort of coping mechanism did you develop there what were the sort of stories that you told yourself well I just got on with life I mean right. mate at the end of the day that's what we all have to do yeah I mean, I think sometimes we spend too much time overthinking and thinking these things. Yeah. As a child, you just got to get through every day, okay? And um, yes, I would have days where I'd be scared and I'd be so nervous, but I would put on my confidence, I'd put on my happy smile and my happy face, and, and I was very popular at school. And this was something you learned to do yourself. This is what just... I just learned to do. You just put on the happy face. I never told a soul, never told a soul about my abuse until I was till my first marriage my first husband so it was just something that um yeah I just put away and and I just got on with my life and I I just coped with everything as it as it came along I mean I felt I didn't have any choice because I was never going to give up yeah I was never a person that was going to give in or give up and I knew deep down that there was something in me a belief in me my self-belief and I think that was the biggest thing that believing in me in knowing that I could do something with my life. No matter what anyone threw at me, I could deal with it and I would get through my life and I would come out a better person. So my whole life's been like that. So it's yeah. not really... People talk about it and, and say, how did you do it? But I just did it. I just did it, mate. There was, you just got on with it in those days. And today it's a little bit different, of course. And, of course, I look at things a little bit differently too now when I see young people suffering with their depression and, and everything that's happening. And, of course, I suffered with that as a child, but you never spoke about it. Mm. You just got on with it. So I guess I've always been pretty resilient. Do you think we um, overthink things then? Nowadays? Yes, I do. I know you mentioned that earlier mm. on. And, and mm. there's almost... Um, I mean, I, I'm a parent of an now 11 year old daughter and I'm interested to know what she thinks and feels but at the same time I feel like sometimes I just have to say to her just do it <laughs> you know yes we we can be um, I see many helicopter parents can we say that yeah that hover over their young ones and I can understand I mean I'm the mother of two sons and two stepsons mm. and nine grandchildren for goodness sake yeah you know, and I guess I could be one of those hovering grandparents more than I was with my... And I wasn't with my own sons because then in those days, the 70s and, you know, um, I wasn't a, a, a helicopter parent, but I was always... I always wanted the best for my children. Um, we have to let our children express themselves and to grow within themselves. And so today, with so much that's happening, mm. we need to listen. That's the only thing I'm going to say. Um, I have members in my family that suffer terrible mental health and um, some of those very young, okay? And we have to listen to our young people. You have an 11-year-old daughter. That's a vital age. It's listening, loving and supporting. And that's what I say to all my children. I love you, I listen and I support but they have to be able to make decisions for themselves. And, and that's what my work in philanthropy and um, with the young people in the schools is teaching them that if you're sad or you're in pain in any way, turn it around and help somebody. And if they help somebody, then it makes them feel better. Because, see, I've done that all my life. Mm. So when I've been sad or I've been in pain, well, if I help someone, it'll make me feel better. And it always has. 
So um, I never, I always walk my talk. I never talk about anything that I've never experienced yes. or that I think I don't know anything about. I don't have any qualifications. As you know, I left school at 14. But these are life experiences. And I know with our young people today that we need to let them talk. Parents don't listen enough. Uh, if a parent can listen for five minutes to their child and have that complete heart-to-heart -heart contact and not have the phone sitting beside them or the laptop and not say, oh, just a minute, I just need to put this phone call away, um, you lose it with them. You have to be 100%, 150% with them and listening to them. And then trying not to be too super critical or, or um, trying not to use, which is hard for parents, what you've been through in your life, you don't want your child to go through. We all say that. I yeah. said the same. I don't want my sons to go through what I went through. I want them to have a great upbringing and a wonderful schooling. But when you think about it, this is what makes you the person that you are. And it's no different for our children, for the adversities that they go through. Mm. And that's how that's what builds the resilience in them. And that's why so many young people today, they don't have that resilience because they've always had the mum and dad, the helicopter parent, that's given them every single thing every time they've wanted it. Or they've giving them... They've protected them. Yeah, they've protected the them and, uh, from the outside world. And of course now, those that have protected them from the outside world can't any longer because of all of our modern technology and social media. And that's where the majority of the pain comes from for the young people, mm. the bullying and the teasing. And, I, and I've, I've been first-hand witness to all of this, so I do know what I'm, what I'm talking about, and I encourage young people. Well, anyone younger, than, um, six, anyone younger than 60 is young for me, but I encourage young people, all ages, to be able to, to, be able to really sit down and, and think about what they're doing and to be able to talk about it. So I want to normalise a little bit yeah. psychiatrists and psychologists and not that I've ever been to one, but um, and I, sometimes I always I hear stories with people visiting psychiatrists and I think, oh, well, you know, that's, that's, your, that's your world, you do that. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't hurt to be able to go and talk to someone like that and have an hour where you're just talking about yourself. Let's make it normal for young people to be able to talk about their mental health. I know I got off track probably speaking no, to no. you about that, my friend, but it's, I'm very passionate I about think that. One of the questions, and I, I guess I thought I'd bring it, bring it in later, <coughs> but I, I'll bring it in now, is one of the things that um, strikes me about the, the things that you've done is, you know, you, you take, um, you know, breast cancer and having a mastectomy, you know, that's that, uh, probably but many years ago, that was a very, shh, don't talk about it. Um, suicide, depression, um, and things like, shh, let's not talk about it. You seem to have this amazing theme of, let's bring these things that people are not talking about up into the light, normalise it, let's get it out on the table, and let's have it. That's exactly what I do. I'm a catalyst for change, yeah. and a lot of people don't like that. So sometimes I, they try to cut me off at the knees. Why is that? But, well... I don't know. It's probably the people that would put me down for doing those kind of things are very small-minded. You know, have they been through what I've been through? Obviously not, because if you've been through some of these some of these adversities in your life, and we all go through them, everyone's got a story. It's just yep. a different cover. 
mm-hmm. on the book. So every one of us has a story. So I'm no different to anyone else. But I've always been a voice for the people that don't have a voice, that don't feel strong enough. So at 14, my fir- 15, my first breast lump removed, mm. went on to have 12 lumpectomies over the years, ended up at 34 having a mastectomy and a reconstruction. And I just need to correct you there on one small detail. Yeah. That my actual uh, my um, breast disease wasn't malignant, right. so it was a chronic breast disease that resulted in in um, a mastectomy and reconstruction. But my mum was thirty four when she had her breast cancer. I have a sister. I have a six aunties. I have four cousins, all diagnosed with breast cancer. So it's quite prevalent in the family. So yes. many, and my mum would never speak about it, and that's what got me thinking I had just really reconnected with my mum she'd come to New Zealand where I was living with my first husband and had my children and she came for a holiday and we really really connected but before that she had told me stories about you never spoke about having your breast off in those days so she used to wear um, a sock filled with cotton wool in her bra so that was sort of the catalyst that got me thinking and then going off and being trained to be a surgical fitter so I could then fit women with their breast prosthesis so my mother is responsible for my thinking there and of course the rest is history where I've gone on and and opened mastectomy boutiques and looked after women and and then started breast cancer care WA Um, and we are now helping 1500 women a year there's about 1,500 a year diagnosed in WA. Um, a staff of 23, I mean, it's just an amazing organisation. Every service is free, no government funding. Grassroots people have always been the people. And that's why I have succeeded with the charities, or we have, because you never do it. Yeah. You know, you never do it without a whole team of you. I'm just the visionary and have the drive and then people believe in yeah. what I do and they say, yes, we're coming along for the ride with you. But um, um, s- sitting back now and seeing what is being done for all of those women because of my mother, because of what she went through when she was so young, had seven other children went on to have seven other children after my brother and I and and what a life so that's a woman that had adversity and then of course going through and my second husband uh, depression has always been quite strong in my family Um, alcoholism and and depression and my husband God rest his soul my beautiful soul mate who was my boyfriend when I was 11, my very first boyfriend. Yeah. And we met then, like, you know, I was 38 and he was 38 and we were both on our own with two sons each. So if you don't mind me asking, yeah. if, if he was your soulmate from when you were 11, yes. how come you didn't marry him in the first place? Well, because we were only 11, okay? So, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> so, so what happened, um, I had to go into Geraldton to go to high school and... Um, and I can remember writing to him and saying we're too far apart now because he lived um, east of Chapman Valley in a little place called Una. And, you know, you're 11 and 12 and 13, of course you're going to move on. But I always remember meeting him that many years later and he always said, I always loved you. And I looked into those blue eyes and I said, yep, but I've never stopped loving you. Well, we were instantly connected again. So many, I think we were later. meant to go off and do our thing. He married, yeah. he had two children... Um, you know, he had a full life that he led and, and it was a tough life for him because, as I say, you know, alcoholism and depression affected him at mm. a young age. 
And I went off and did my thing and lived in New Zealand, married a Kiwi and had my sons and then started my business there and then brought it back to Perth. But because I only work with the universe, Bryn, so to me, it's no question. I don't Mm. question anything that's put in front of me. The universe put him back into my path at that time and uh, we became a whole family, the Brady Bunch, I call us, all under one roof. And, uh, yeah, so we were meant to be, I think I was meant to be there at that time of my life and he was meant there meant to be there for me at that time and we had 15 years together 15 years that were pretty tough but I like to think about the good times we had wonderful times as well yeah, yeah. but the depression did as you know on the 2nd of yeah 2nd of July in year 2002 um, he took his life I was in Brisbane waiting for the birth of my first grandchild and uh, he took his life that night. So and our lives were never the same after that. I mean, it's 16 years this year, and and we buried him on the day my, you know that, um, yeah, my granddaughter was born. So it's uh, there was intense sorrow and yeah. intense joy. So Jasmine being born gave me the strength because it breaks you, and I was a broken woman. I was 51, he was 51 when he took his life. And um, it just breaks the whole family. Until this day, his sons have never got over it. Never. Mm. I, with my is, age, is there any... you live with it. You learn to live with it. There comes a time. Do you question why? Do you get no. angry? No, I, no, get... I never got angry. Yeah. Some of my family got very angry with mm. him because they could see the pain I was going through. I never experienced anger with him. I just felt incredible sadness. And as I talk to you today, I feel incredible sadness because I know that I couldn't have done any more for him. Mm. Like every day he was in my life. We told each other we loved each other. I was there for him and he was there for me. So I don't beat myself up about why did he do it because Brynett was his choice to do it. And I always say to people, when people's emotional pain is so great, this is the only way that they think that they can leave it. But as I say to people, when you're considering suicide, really, really think about it twice because the burden that you leave behind is far greater than the burden that you believe you were. Most people that die, my husband was one, and many, many others since the where I've known about, we don't want to be a burden on our family. And yet when you leave, it's a bigger burden. Mm. So I like to try and change that way of thinking. Um, mental health and, and uh, is so hard. I, I couldn't even go there, and I don't attempt to even try and explain it. But I do know that we need to um, have empathy, and I do know that probably one of the biggest problems in our society today is ignorance so when people ignorance of ignorance of suicide and why people do it and ignorant um when people make a comment oh how bloody selfish that he went and did that you know or how stupid he's got a beautiful wife and a home and he's got everything why would he go and do that that's got nothing to do with it Mm. and so people that ignorantly express that opinion someone else could believe them and a lot of people do. I have that conversation regularly with people, particularly my age and older. They just say, oh, they're bloody stupid, you know, weak. Why would they do that? They can't get their head around it. Why? I don't know why. Um, in a strange kind is of it because they've never experienced it? For God's sake, I don't know. In a strange kind of way, when you said <clears> the <throat> weak there, 
the first thing that popped into me was, I mean, I know on one level they've got themselves trapped in a, in a, in almost like a prison of thought. Yes. But on one level, at least they've taken some sort of action as opposed to many of us just go around and do the same thing, same thing, same thing. You mean the people that actually take their life, yeah. have they taken some action? Yeah. Oh, you know, yes. I, I know it's They've not... They've tried in a positive way. Um, the, final, the final thing is they have actually taken some action as opposed you know, to when someone says, oh, they're weak. I have, I have the most amazing friend, a beautiful friend. He's not here now because he took his life, but I always say, I don't say I had. I have, because I know that, that, that he's there. And <clears throat> many years ago, when I launched the Help Me campaign and the uh, work I was doing for Lifeline WA, I wanted to do a book called The Glimmer of Hope. And this beautiful friend, Grazi, came from Sydney and was working with a friend of mine here in the roofing industry. Peter Hughes, who was one of the Bali bombing victims. And Peter went on to do some wonderful things and turned his pain by having support groups for burn victims and, and helping a lot of people. So how he met Grazi was that a few years before that, Grazi's depression was so great that he decided he was going to end his life. And so he sent his wife and children out of the house and he poured petrol over himself and set fire to himself. And it was his son that broke the door down and put the hose on him. Grazi lived. And, but that seven or eight or nine years that he was living after what he'd done, he was always tortured. And that was a, watching him he would grow. He came over here. He was in the Glimmer of Hope book. He wrote a beautiful piece. He wanted to live. He wanted to live for his four beautiful grown-up children. He had a beautiful relationship with them after, you know, before but after in particular. Um, they all went through hell, as you can imagine. But they pulled together as a family. The children were leaving school and graduating. And, and he had a full life. He was working over here. But it would hit him like a bolt of lightning. It would just hit him. It'd be some little thing that would set him off. And so there were a few times that he contemplated taking his life. Again. And I spoke to him three days, and he was coming to the um, gala dinner, the Black Diamond Ball for Lifeline. I said, come and be my partner, and he was coming to that. And three days later, he took his life. So when I spoke to him that three days before, he sounded... And this is the thing that's really hard for people to understand. I could be having a conversation with you now or you with me and I could be externally exuding all of this confidence and, mm. and um, passion, and, but inside there was something that was broken. And people that suffer really bad depression, chronic depression and all these mental illnesses, they, they can hide it very well, particularly the younger people, so they can put on the happy face but then they are so broken inside for whatever reason. Um, for whatever reason. Mental health, depression, chronic depression. I've lived with it with my dad who was, you know, bipolar and schizophrenic. And so I was sort of on that journey all my life with him. So, But I think the biggest thing is that we try to protect our loved ones. We don't want them to hurt themselves. So it's up to us, individuals and people like myself that, thank you universe or angels whatever mm. that has given me the strength and the inner strength 
to be able to be a voice and to be able to help some people in some small way if we can. And that's what Lifeline WA does. That's why I'm aligned with them because the work they do is phenomenal. But we need, we need to get rid of the ignorance. We need to get rid of the people saying horrible things. Social media, don't even get me started on it. I don't, mm. I don't even want to talk about that today. Um, it's because it's so horrible. But we just all need to be very aware of what we say when we open our mouths with anybody. Mm. You can say, are you okay? That's a wonderful campaign, but it doesn't go quite far enough. But it's yeah. a start. It's a, it's a, it's a start. It's a door that opens. I say, Bryn, are you okay? You just might have you at that moment where Bryn would say, well, actually, Ros, I'm not okay, and I really feel like unloading. And then you talk to someone. And I, to me, I don't care what anyone says. If you can open your heart and talk about the innermost, innermost um, things in your heart that are really breaking you and, and, and making you feel so sad that it could just help you get on that path to recovery. Many people won't. Every four hours, someone's taking their life in Australia, my friend, every four hours. But if I know, or at Lifeline, we know that we've helped one person stop them from taking their life, that's all I need. I always use this, this little sentence that I say, I can't help, you can't help everyone, but everyone can help somebody. But somebody can help everyone. You know yeah. what I'm trying to say. Yeah, you can't do everyone. You can't do everyone. You can't help everyone. Mm. But you can help somebody. You know. And if we all had that philosophy, and there are beautiful people out there in the world, there'd be people listening to your your podcast today, and and they know what I'm talking about because they're the heroes. They're the they're the heroes out there. Yeah. You know, it's like the lifeline supporters. You know, the counsellors. They're my heroes, and it's a people in the community. That, that are drawn together to help someone and not judge them. So if you're in a community, someone's taken their life. You're in a community now. Say you're in Onslow, you're in Karatha, you're in Geraldton, wherever, and you hear that someone's lost their life, I always say, don't turn away from that person or that family. Yes. It might be as simple as just making a, a casserole and dropping it off yeah. with a little note saying, I care. And that's what people need. Because when you lose someone to suicide, a lot of people don't know what to say. They find it too hard to talk about. So they would rather just move away. So a lot of families, um, when they lose a loved one to suicide, also lose friends. Hmm. Well, people in their life that that actually can't cope. Because it comes too yeah. difficult. It's too to deep for them. About. And that's okay for those people that have stepped aside. It's not good for the people that you've left because they don't understand that Bryn might be feeling exactly the same as the person that you lost. So that's why it's too close to home for you. So you can't deal with it. Mm. And that's why I'm saying we must deal with it. We must talk about it. And because if we save one life, well then I'm a happy, I'm a happy person. There's, there's a theme as I listen to there's a theme as I listen to you talk um, about what you do, about what you see and, and thing. It's almost turning to where the pain is, bringing light mm-hmm. into the dark spots. Um, you know, with your campaigns of bringing things up into yes. the co- conversation. But also, you know, because the question I had coming into here is, wh- why is it that we don't have these like, conversations with the, with the little community of friends and family around us? And it's not just... 
talking about bloody footy mm. and mm. and this car and going to the pub, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's having a, a real meaningful conversation where you sit, listen, engage. Mm. You say what you want. I have the spaciousness to deal with what you say, even if it's contrary to my beliefs. Yes. Yes. That I put interest into that. We both come out of it. We both feel like we've been listened and validated. Yes. And and in that, then you get a sense of self-worth you've also you know felt safe enough to bring up things that you're dealing with yes. etc instead of pushing them down you bring them up to the light and, and then you realize often I often find that when you bring stuff up to light then you realize Half time, it's, this was just rubbish. rubbish it's it's about. it's not as much just, of a burden. It's is not it? a bigger deal no, as I it's thought. Not. It's just because I've kept it in here and it kept it away, and and that's whether I'm worried about my job or bigger things or etc. etc. And, and men are the worst. We are. Men are so hard at being able to show their feelings. Not so much the younger generation now. I admire the young men. I've got grandsons, and they'll talk quite openly. I'm probably talking about those about the men um, uh, going through their mid, you know, mid forties. Yep. Uh, yes, you fifties, sixties. But when you get to people my age, well, they're no. Sorry, mate. I don't even, you know, honestly, <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to sort of probably go down that track with you because they're too hard to crack. You yeah. know, you'll get some that might be my age that will open up and talk. And I've been in a situation where I've done a talk or a, um, a motivational and. Men have come up, this gentleman came up and, and there were tears running down his face and he said, I suffer terrible depression, I've never told another soul, you're the first person. So what was my reaction? Come here, give him the give biggest hug. hug. Yeah. And I just said to NEC, I'm so proud of you. Now the rest won't be so hard. You keep talking about it. And do you know that man did? Yeah. So he was about 48, 49 at the time and he did then from then go on and go and seek some counsel and yeah. go and talk. I'm not a counsellor. I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not. I, don't I am. We, all have we don't need to be. to be. We don't need to be. I, I. I'm a real person. I'm not saying psychiatrists aren't. No. But I, no. every lived experience is what I can. Uh, if you've been through it, you can walk your talk. And if you hate, I hate seeing people in pain. And I think, well, if I can just help that one person, mm. but it, you know, it's selfish because it makes me feel bloody great at the end of the day. Not a day goes by where I don't do a random act of kindness. Mm. Not a day. And I say that without a word of a lie because it's in my DNA. I just but do there's, it. There's a nice balance of, and I alluded to it before we started talking, there's a nice balance of selfishness and selflessness. Yes, yes. And that's where I've got to learn to, um, perhaps my family always say I've got to be a little bit more selfish. Not in my DNA, I can't be. But yeah. I do know now that I have a balance at 66 yeah. Just starting my business, just started, and it's like, well, starting a business at 66, well, I can tell you how not to run a business because I failed at that. Yes. But I can tell you now, at this stage of my life, being there, done that, and if I haven't learnt from all of those lessons, well, then, you know, I'm, I'm just a wasted space here on me. this planet because, <laughs> you know, what's the use? So I have learnt so much, and I say to everyone, you know, learn by your mistakes. Please never call me. Someone said something about perfect. I said, don't bloody call me perfect. No. I don't want to be perfect. I don't like perfect. I love things to be a little bit jumbled up, and I don't want people to, to be there on a pedestal. Don't put me on a pedestal because I've got letters before and after my names. That's not what it's about. But if I've helped someone, genuinely helped someone, and I get amazing feedback. You know, you get, I get feedback from children. I get it from women with breast cancer. 
because there's always things under the radar that that we're doing you know as a little community helping helping other people when they're desperate financially and I have a giving circle and it's just they're all stuff that we just do under the radar and and um but but no so I do have to be I'll always be selfless that's just the way I am and I'm very proud of the way I am but you know what it's organic my business now is organic so now I've been there done that I just have to learn to be able to say, well, yes, if you would like me, um, you know, at your function, then that's why I've got a publicist now. Yeah. Because I don't like dealing with any of that. I need to say, though, probably 95% of still everything I do is free of charge. <laughs> yeah. But I guess it's you sending out the your signal of this is me, this is yes. the way I think. Yes, respect me a little happen. bit now. I, yeah. I, I need now to, re, to start to... Um, to be able to become a little bit financial. If you read my book, you know, I've never had finances because money to me means nothing. It has never meant anything to me. So um, hence I don't have a cent today, but that's okay because now I have a different mindset. You know, I'm a little bit of a slow learner, I say, at 66, yep. 67 this year. Well, you know, wrote the book a year or so ago. Now I'll get my business going and it's organic. If people want me, they want to pay for me, wonderful. Mm. If you don't, that's okay as well. That's fine. Tell me a bit more. What is, what is the business that you're uh, now Well, it's the look. It's, it's just my whole life of learning and now putting it into like a consultancy. Yes. And so I've got three or four things at the moment. One is supporting a young woman who lost her mum to cancer. She's never done a fundraiser in her life, so she wants to... Um, so I'm um, consulting for her, helping her, guiding her, yep. um, and just keeping her on the right track. Another one is being an advocate for chemo at home, which I firm, firmly believe in, that everyone should have a choice to be able to have the chemotherapy at home rather than to go to a hospital. Yep. Um, I, I do mentoring. I do workshops. Um, I actually do anything that people ask me to do if it's something that I know what I'm doing. And it's aligned to it's you. It's aligned to my values. Mm. Uh, there are people that I don't work with because I'm not on the same page as them. Yeah. And, of course, at my age, mate, you can turn around and say, well, you know, fuck off if you're not on the same page as me. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's just the way it is. So, yeah. you know, it doesn't bother you, me. You can tell people. Fuck I can tell age. people to <laughs> fuck off, you know. Um, at my age, I can. And um, I have been known to, but... Um, but yeah, I at my age, my life is, you know, I'm at the end and I'm at the, the last part of my life now. So I've done all the hard yards. So now to being able to take that message out, to give, to know that I am really, really helping someone with their life or just mm. at a crisis in their life, um, that's a pretty good feeling. So, so I don't do a day's work in my life, to be honest. I feel that I've never worked a day in my life when you're helping people and you're really there with people. And, of course, the biggest thing, the value is humility, is always remaining humble. Mm. I don't have a lot of time. I don't suffer fools gladly. And I'm not too good with people with big egos. You know, with their egos, you know, they can't get their head through the door because, you know. So I, I'm usually in tune with those people and sort of don't have them in my, in my life. Negativity, I don't sit well. It doesn't sit well with me. I give people that come into my life probably three or six months with their negative attitude, but if it hasn't changed by then, no, there are too these many are, positive people. These are more sort of friends. Well, because obviously friends. If you're dealing definitely. with if you're dealing with people that have uh, mental concerns mm. and depression, then negativity is going to be a part of what. Well, negativity, yes, and I meet people, mm. hundreds of people, all the time. 
and I know the one. So when it's someone that's very negative with a mental illness, yes, that's a bit yeah. different. I'm talking about people that come in there negative because they haven't they haven't really done their housework that day, or there's too much dust on the windowsill, or everything they talk about. Oh, the rain! I'm sick of the rain, or it's too hot, or you know, there are people out there that I know today mm. that are actually only have days to live. Yes. So let's put it in perspective. Mm. There are so many people I've met. I mean, when I look at the women under 40 in Breast Cancer Care WA that are on, on their journey of breast cancer and terminal mm. and they have little children, man, don't come and tell me that you haven't done your housework or the weather's too hot or, you know, or just be negative in, in everything that everyone, in the world's issues, everything. It's never a positive slant put on it. Whereas I like to put the positive slant on everything. That, because there's always good. No matter how much bad, there's always something good there that you can find mm. in a person. You oh, know? Yeah. Definitely. So one of my questions is, um, because uh, obviously speaking to you today uh, and with um, some of the other guests I've spoken to on WA Real, is um, often people are, are taking pretty... Oh, at the start shitty events in their life and then they're turning that into something bold and beautiful mm. and doing great stuff and this that and the other um yet there may be there may be many of us in in life who haven't had the shitty event and and it, mm. no, life's life's been good yep some bits have not been great but you know compared to some of the things that we've talked about in your yes. in your history um, that hasn't occurred. So then there isn't this kind of reference point to bounce forwards yes. from and create... I mean, your your belief structure, as I listen mm. to you, about believing in Ros, and I've heard you mm. talk about it in other interviews, you know, it's, it's ironclad. Mm. Um, and, and that will have been um, brought together in the crucible of all of these events. Yes. Um, but my challenge at times is... There is still a lot of us um, out there who haven't had those serious life events yet. Where and how do they develop that strength within themselves? Do you, do you see? Do you see what I mean? Humanity, isn't it? Mm. Us as human beings, we're very complex people. I believe you're either a cold prickle or a warm fuzzy. That's what I say about people. And you have you have people. You know, look at Andrew and Nicola Forrest at the moment. You know, people see them, they put them on a pedestal and they're just amazing people and they've given $40 million or, or whatever they're always, they're always giving. But it wasn't always when you, people just see them like that now. Mm. But it wouldn't have been always like that for them either when they're growing up. But a lot of these people are self-made and they've worked their guts out to get where they are. I use them as an example because they're probably only one of the two profile people that are in my book that that I do touch on with philanthropy because they are such good giving people mm. it's not about them um, just giving money it's about them also giving of themselves yes so um, that's an important you part know, that's very very important important part for philanthropy is to give of yourself so a lot of people in the public arena and people out there think oh you'll look look at you know look at Andrew and Nicola Forrest yeah. they've got this Bill they've got Gates everything you know but they are they are the real salt of the earth people mm. when you really meet them and really know how they tick they're the true philanthropists as well um you know as i say i give with my heart yeah. i don't have finances one day when i've got finances i'll give financially as well as with my giving heart mm. but but um 
but these people are the real deal. And then of also, then also you've got. So how do you take a young, a young man that's been to Scotch College, um, and they've had everything. They've come from a beautiful family. It's been giving, and um, how do they get, and to be able to give? You know what? It's very simple. It's their role models. It's their parents because mm. everything starts in the home. If you're a good role model to your child, and you practice giving with them. Can I just say, like, an example is, and I've got to, and you can go back to that because I'll forget because I have so much in me yeah. to talk, but but um, teaching our children, you have to walk that talk. So I'm with my two granddaughters. I think they were eight and seven. I park at the back of Lifeline WA. This is years ago. They're 16 and 17 now. I get out of the car to take some paperwork in. I trip over a big sheet of canvas that has a man underneath it, a homeless man sleeping. And when I come back out, I get in the car and the girls went, oh, my God, oh, Waffy, they call me Waffy. Waffy, we've got such a fright, that man. And I said, yes, it's a homeless man and I feel really sad for him. And, and I turned to them and I said, and they said, oh, no, no, Waffy, don't um, be careful. I, I'm scared. And I said, why are you scared? And they said, well, because, um, you know, he, he's, uh, he might be a, a, a drunk or a horrible man. And I'm thinking, my God, this is coming from my grandchildren that I've been teaching the power of giving to. But this was a situation where they'd never really sort of seen a man get up, you know, dishevelled and get out from under that canvas that I'd tripped over. Yeah. And, I, and I turned to them and I said, um, um, you know, that that man, do you realise that that man may have lost all of his family in a big fire? I was trying to make it, yeah. you know, real for them. Or he may have lost all his money. I said, and what if he was had, had illness like like your poppy did, you know, because mm. Ross had taken his life and we call him Poppy Borough. And mm. I said, what if he was like Poppy Borough and he was just so sad and he's got nowhere to live? And I said, um, so that's what true compassion is about, children. That's what compassion. So I said, do you know what compassion is now? And, and they said, yes, and oh, we feel really sorry for them, for him. And that changed their life. And a young man listening to me one night after I told this story come up to me in tears and he said, you know, I was in the city the other day and I had my five-year-old son with me. He said there was a homeless man begging for money. He said, I crossed the road so that my son didn't have to see that. Mm -hmm. He said, I'll never do that again. So um, what I'm trying to allude to is, even as a man of your age now, that the goodness in you and the giving in you, that mm. giving heart, has to have come from somewhere and it's come from your family you can have the best upbringing in the world and, the, and more money in the world than anyone else but it doesn't mean to say that you don't have to be a good person and so um, I think a lot of people with wealth are like that and I also know a lot of people with wealth aren't like that yes you know that they're just interested in it's the bottom line it's about the dollar it's about the best car and about the mm. biggest mansion and the best school that they can send their children to and it's all about I have to look good and it's about me. It's about me looking good and I'm looking after my family because they're in a mansion, we've got a beautiful mm. car and they're going to school. Going back to it. They but going back to it, people. they could be the saddest people in the world. So as a human being, you need to have that, that um, humility, that empathy. Empathy is a big thing that a lot of people don't possess is being empathetic to people. You must have that empathy. 
put yourself in someone else's shoes and then that shows you how you never judge anyone. Mm. You know, I could go and visit, I visited someone in prison a few couple of years ago who had done a, a horrible crime, but I didn't judge that person because I actually had empathy and I thought, well, what if that was me? There go I, by the grace of God. Mm. You know what I mean? So, um, so yes, we grow up and we be fine adults and we be not so fine adults, but I do believe that the majority of it comes from the teaching of our parents. It's interesting you talk about empathy. I read recently that you know, empathy as, as an as a inherent human skill is being more eroded away with, I don't know, faceless management systems and things like that, and that empathy plays the role of almost being the failsafe from stopping us from being mm. utterly barbaric to one another. And um, yeah, it, it, it's made me reflect more mm. and more on the fact that the more we can be empathetic to one another, the more, the more that, yeah, we can start to get along. The better your yeah. heart becomes. And, and, and it sounds so bloody obvious I know. the way I say it. It's so, it is so obvious. And why can't people be like that? Yeah, actually do it. Empathy is number one with humility. Yes. You put those two together and of course, God help us, put it with passion. Yes. Then there's no stopping. Indeed. You know, there's no stopping you, and there's no stopping me with what. And and don't get me wrong, I ha, I've had my bad days. Mm. I have PJ days, where I don't want to talk to anybody. I was going to ask you yeah. about that. Do you, yeah. do, I was going to say, Musha, do you have like poor little me days? There? Yes, I do. Yes, yeah. I do. I think if we're all honest with each other, um, I have my, um, as I say, my low vibe days. Right. So I might just be just tired. I might have been doing so many things and, and, and all the work I do is heart-to-heart work. So I'm involved with people mm. at this level where the stuff that we talk about and we work with, I mean, you can't not work with women dying with breast cancer. You can't not work with, with Make-A-Wish Foundation that I started here with dying children. And you can't not work with people with mental illness and families that have lost loved ones to suicide and not not feel it. So, But I do tend... To have a have a way there, I don't actually take it right into my heart. Mm. I can help you, but I won't take that home tonight and lay in bed and worry about Bryn's problems. Yeah, I I do know where to put those. I've got little compartments. Little in, I've got little compartments in that heart, mate, and it's a big heart, and I put them all in those little compartments, and I bring them out when I need to. But the days if I have um, a low day, my low days might be more because it's a physical with my health. You know where I you know, where I can't sort of do yeah. quite so much. And that happens when you get to a certain age. But um, so my PJ days are where I just, um, everyone knows, where we won't bother Roz today, we'll just leave her. And I just turn the phone off and I have a whole day. And sometimes a lot of those days are just in bed watching Netflix, doing things I want to do, watching my programs. Because you've got to have that balance. Yeah. So I've got to escape into my little world of um, watching all my series and, and doing whatever I want to do. Yeah. I have. I do believe that it helps me that every day I have reflection. Okay. Can yeah, so every day about 4 o'clock or 4.30 around that time, <coughs> I actually take the time to, to um, just sit and be with myself for half an hour. Mm. And in that half hour, I reflect on everything I've done today. So you'll be in my reflections today at the end of the day. Um, and then I work out, well, from that meeting or from that person, I've now got to do that. But once I've sorted all that out, reflected on it, and really given thanks to the universe, um, you know, my angels are with me all the time. So, mm. And giving those thanks, I then um, put all that to bed, don't worry about it. 
until the next day so I don't lay awake. I'll then go and um, do whatever I need to do and have a great night's sleep and then conquer it the next day. Yeah. I do have a pad on the bed beside yes. me. Yes. Because I have all these thoughts and my brain sort of never really turns off that much. Oops, yeah. yes, I've got to ring her. Oops, I've got to do that. So I just scribble little notes and sometimes in the morning I don't, even, yeah, I don't even know. Yeah. Hell, I, I can't even understand what I've written. But, but um, yes, so I pretty well have my boundaries for myself. You know, everyone needs to have our boundaries. You need mm. to know when you can stop. You need to know when you can start. You also need to know when you can talk to someone the way you want to. Yes. So... Um, I've always, always followed my gut intuition. Always listened to my intuition and my gut. Um, and that's why I am where I am today. Probably why I'm poor, because I don't, you know, it's never been about making the money yeah. and I'm going to go out and do this speech and I'm going to tell you this. So it's not about that, you know. So um, it's just, yeah, just truly being authentic. But, but I just love life. I'm very blessed with my whole life. And yes, the things that have happened to me have happened to other people as well. And aren't I blessed that I can actually now perhaps lead by example and, and tell yeah. a story that might help you or someone else? So, I mean, that's all I want in life. So, Plus now, yes, I do want to make a bit of money, so I've got some choices to yeah. take the grandchildren on holidays. I don't need any material things. I, I'm in a rented apartment. People say if you won lotto, you make a lot of money, would you buy a house? I'd say no way. Not interested in any of that material positions, yeah. possessions because I have what I want. Um, and to me, that's really... Oh, I have beautiful people that give to me all the time, so it's not like I have to go out looking like I'm being dressed by the second-hand shop or anything. Yeah. But I have, because all my beautiful friends come and give. And, yeah. you know, I have jewellery given to me for functions. And I guess that's why people think sometimes, oh, she looks pretty wealthy, you know, philanthropist. But um, not the case, and I'm very happy to talk about it. Yeah. But now I do want some. I do want to make some money, and I do want to have capitalize some choices. Capitalise on your life's learning. I want to capitalise on my life's learning. <laughs> yes, and I've been doing a little bit of that with the book, so yeah. that, that's quite lovely. You mentioned, actually, it's interesting. You, you mentioned a couple of times, um, you know, I bless the universe and, and my angels. Um, expand on that a bit more oh. about your relationship with the universe and well, I, bigger than yourself. It is bigger than me. The universe is, and I just all I can say is uh, Dalai Lama. Right. And then you may understand. Yes. I follow the Buddhist philosophy every day of my life. To me, which is being kind, not judging people, um, and just doing one act of kindness a day. Not worrying about... I never worry about what happened, what was yesterday, mm. because I can't do anything about that, and I don't want to waste my good energy yeah. on anything that happened yesterday. I'm in the present today, and then tomorrow I'll worry about tomorrow. So um, I do have a very strong, very strong affiliation with the angels, and I do believe that you know my guardian angels are there, and I'm surrounded by them in my... Everyone that knows and loves me has bought me an angel at some stage, and my biggest painting on the wall is massive of an angel pulling threads of light through, and... Quite often I'll go and stand in front of my guardian angel and, and say, well, I need a little bit of help today. I need a little bit of strength to pull me through. I've got this really tough meeting or I've got to go and meet with someone. And, you know, and on a day like when I had to go and meet a, a beautiful mum who'd lost her 13-year-old son to suicide, mm. I went and spent three hours with her. Before I left, I stood in front of that angel to give me strength. And when I came back, I said, thank you. So I love the Dalai Lama. And there were three people in my life that I've looked up to. 
um, that I've always wanted to meet on my bucket list. So, of course, Nelson Mandela, who I'll obviously meet in another yep. place one day. Oprah, who I did did get to meet. Wow. Through the generosity of spirit and love of a beautiful friend, she bought me a ticket to meet Oprah and to talk with Oprah. And, um, of course, the other one is the Dalai Lama. So it's on my bucket list. Have you met him yet? No, and I want to have an audience with him. So uh, it's very simple. And I, I, when I look at him, I think, look at the simple life. It's the simple things in life. You know, it's me now going out this afternoon at four o'clock to be with my grandchildren and babysit because my son's going to take my daughter-in-law out for Valentine's dinner yeah. and being with them. And just, um, yes, so, so I'm so blessed. I don't expect... You know, and the, and the people that come to me that I've been blessed that they feel that they've, that they've been blessed because I'm in their life. But no, 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 the karma is far greater, you know. I had T-shirts made, um, can't keep up with the karma, because the good karma that washes over me every day. So good karma is nothing to do with money and how much money yeah. you make and what office you're sitting in or, or what your title is. Yeah. It's nothing to do with that. It's My to do with... over your dogma. Yes, <laughs> karma is there. It's... Um, you know, um, the Dalai Lama and, and Mother Teresa was another one who I just, you know, it's just the simple things in life that really make a difference in another person's life. Yes. It's not about me giving you $10,000 or, or it might help, but um, but you know what I'm saying? At the end of the day, it's, it's um, yes, and I have a very strong spirituality um, that is connected to the universe there's no god or it's just the universe and my angels that take care of me and a lot of and i don't talk about politics or religion when i speak because i feel that to me the the um, my spirituality is who i am and what i am and if you can't see that well mm. you know we, we've just part wasted the whole yeah, it's just part yeah. of who i am <laughs> yeah yeah superb so as we look forward to the next um Three to five years. What are some of the things you'd like to do, achieve, etc.? Well, I want to keep waking up every morning and breathing mm. so I know I'm alive, okay? Yeah, good And that stuff. is really important because the next three to five years, it will be exactly probably as the last three to five years have been, where it's about taking a message and giving and particularly working with philanthropy and children. Like I've got 10 schools that I work with yeah. in the schools at the moment. And we and I teach philanthropy, and because philanthropy and well-being are tied together, you do something good, you feel good. Well, then that's going to help your yes. mental health. So, um, be a good philanthropist. And I say to the children, you're my mini philanthropists, mm. because everybody, if you go out and do a kindness for someone today, or just smile at someone, you're being a good person. Yeah. So the next three to five years, well, I want to make some money, mate. That's going to be yeah. wonderful. <laughs> um, so I can spend it on my grandchildren. Um, and uh, on my family, and just um, just do what I'm doing now. I mean, I, I, there is nothing really I want to change, and I don't have any regrets in life because everything I've been through has probably made me the person I am today. Um, and so, in all honesty, I just want to keep doing what I'm doing. I meet beautiful people every day. I, I yes, it's just incredible the people I meet and. Of course, if I meet some that I'm not really interested in, it doesn't matter. I don't have to meet them again, if you know what mm. I mean. So so I, I am incredibly blessed and there's really nothing that I would change, to be honest. Superb. <laughs> um, how, what do you, oh, I think I already asked you this, but what <laughs> do you do to keep yourself sort of grounded and to keep yourself um, almost in touch with everything? 
Well, it's something in within me. Um, it's my humility. Mm. Humility keeps you grounded. When I'm out every day meeting a woman just in the community that's got nothing, mm-hmm. like this particular mum, two sons, no money, house burnt down, diagnosed with breast cancer, lost her job. Christmas Day they had nothing. They were going to help the homeless. So my giving circle, we turned around and helped her and gave presents for them that day. But what I'm saying is, it's the if I'm meeting people like that every day of my life, how can I not remain humble? How can I not be grounded? Hmm. If I'm not, I sh- if I'm not grounded or humble, I shouldn't be doing the work I'm doing. Basically, it's very simple. So it is keeping humility, keeping the passion to want to make a difference in the world. And I feel that when I leave this world, you know, yep, I made a bit of a difference like you've made a difference with what you're doing now. We're no different, any of us. And I think it's when we put ourselves up here, that's when the egos come in and the big heads and we lose sight of, of what, human, what, what we really should be doing as a human being. And this goes for everyone in the world. If you've got friends watching this podcast in England, love England, by the way, um, and, and around the world or in our beautiful, in my beautiful community of Western Australia, um, there are people in the community now out there doing exactly what I'm doing. They're just probably not being noticed, but they're the heroes. They're the ones that I love working with, and they're the people that keep me grounded and keep me passionate. Superb. Mm. Superb. Um, if you could go back and speak to that Ros, who was probably working in the hotel about all those years, give that young lady a piece of advice from where you are now, mm-hmm. what would it be? Never, never, ever, ever give up. Solid. Simply, never give up. Solid. And for the person out there who has, much like yourself, gone through uh, an amount of adversity and then wants to do something with that life lesson but doesn't know where to start, what would you suggest to them? Come and see me. Come and see me. <laughs> <laughs> because believe it or not, yeah. that is one of the things I do my mentoring and consulting mm. with. So many people come to me and say, I've got all this time now. I've made my wealth. I've got this time. I want to do something real. Yeah, It's maybe. interesting to hear businessmen say that, that have been very successful in the business arena. But now they, they go back and they've been through adversity and you know, some terrible things have happened to them in their family life Mm. and they want to give back. Um, I say to those people, don't ever let anything stop you because if you really want to make a difference, you can do it. Don't let not having money stop you because to me that's just a cop-out. So a lot of people say, look, if I had the money, I'd do this. And I say to them, well, I haven't got the money and I do it. Why aren't you doing it? You don't have to put a dollar value on everything that you do. Yes. No, no, no. Even my philanthropy work in the schools with the children and the little love angels, the kindy children, they colour in the little angels. It's not about fundraising for our charities with them. It's about those little ones doing something for someone. And one of our events, they walk around and give them to people as a gift. You know, it's about, it's, it's, it's about giving, giving of yourself. So it doesn't matter how much money you've got in the world. 
um, yes, and you can put it to great use because there's a lot of causes out there that at the moment, well, they always have been, but there's a lot of desperate people. And that's why I promote collaboration between people and charities. Let's work together, which I can say is pretty hard for the charity world. Mm. They don't like to work together. Why is that? Well, because they've got their own agenda, a lot mm. of them. You know, a lot of people have their own agendas and, and they've started a charity. And it's about them. It's their charity. Oh, and they've got to do it their way. No, no, no. I founded Breast Cancer Care WA 16 years ago for the first five years, run it, got the key people on board, got the people with the skills that I didn't have on board, yep. and then you have to step back. And letting go is the hardest thing to do for many people. Letting go for me, it was difficult, but I did. But in letting go, I have now received... The most powerful gift of all is that Breast Cancer Care WA is helping up to 1,500 women and their families a year. Isn't that why I started it? I didn't start it for Ros Worthington. Mm. I started it for the women and their families. And a lot of people lose sight of that when they start a charity or a business. It's all about them and how great it makes them look. No, no, no. Help others by just giving of yourself. Mm. <laughs> Can't put it any more simply, can no, you, Bryn? No, <laughs> you can't. You can't break it down any more simply than that, can you? So if somebody's listened to this and they want to read your book yes. or get in touch, yes. um, how do they go about that? They can go on my website. Yep. Um, <coughs> which is? Which is um, www.rosworthington.com. I think that's it, yes. Yeah. And you just Google. I, I've never really Googled myself until a couple of years ago. And, oh, my God, when I Googled me, I thought, oh, my... I had done things I'd forgotten that I'd done. So you can Google me, but um, you can go on my website and order my book. Yep. You can go on my website and perhaps... And, and this isn't some big flash website. Again, remember, don't have all those dollars to build these amazing websites mm. to do everything. But my beautiful um, young accountant built it for me so but it has all the information that people need it talks about the work we do with the love angels and and i've got to update that now more yeah. with the schools and everything but if they want to buy my book if they want to um book me to speak yeah. or book me for mentoring or anything like that just go on the website superb ros it thank you so much for your time today and sharing your story it it's been absolutely captivating to listen to <laughs> and I, I just sat here letting it all wash in and oh, it's been thank amazing you, I think <clears throat> some of the biggest things that came out for me was um, you know philanthropy doesn't the word philanthropy doesn't necessarily need to be tied to, to money no and in fact far from it, it's it's simple acts mm. of kindness that can cost you next to no time and absolutely no money at all um, like you said start with a smile or something yeah. like that or pay attention to somebody else I think expanding out, you know, actually paying attention to others and having those conversations and connecting in, you know, put the bloody phone down, yeah. switch off the Facebook, etc., etc. Connect with the people immediately around you, and not just are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Um, it's just dig in a little bit and yes. find out, and also share as well. Sometimes it might take the act of you sharing something a bit more to make somebody sit up and yes. listen, and then that comes back. And then from that, we can start to bring some of the things that are lurking around in us up into the light and, and True. see them for what they actually are so they don't fester and become mm. 
bigger, nastier yeah. things that have so true. Offense. Yes. So they're the biggest things that I've got out of today, and I'm sure my listeners have. I'd like to thank the listeners for for listening to this, and I'm sure you've had plenty out of it. Ros, thank you for your time. Thank you, Bryn. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. <laughs> thank you. <laughs>